I'm sorry. Um, now, those are, those are very simple words to say, right? I'm sorry. But um, it's hard to say them. It's hard to say them and to mean them. To say I'm sorry means like you got to take responsibility. Right? To say that is to say like I, I own what's happened or what's done. And I'm sorry for it. I, I, I realize that I'm responsible for this. And the reality is I think we would rather not. We neither say the words because of what it means, the sense of having to take responsibility for something I've said or done. Uh, we are in a culture today that would say, well, no, it's someone else's fault. Uh, we think about that individually, uh, certainly just sort of socially, politically speaking. Uh, think of whatever group out there that you don't like, and you have some famous website, famous person or popular website that's telling you it's that other group's fault. What's happened in America, it's all their fault. We're all oriented towards saying, look, it's, it's, they should be the ones who say sorry, not me. Um, you know, I think of, uh, um, there's, a, uh, there's a movie coming out, Into the Spider-Verse, I'm looking forward to it. No, Across the Spider-Verse, it's a sequel. Uh, and there's a scene in the movie, and I kind of think of this in terms of uh, how we tend to approach the sense of taking responsibility. It's, it's everyone pointing at everyone else, right? That middle guy, just for good measure, is pointing at both of them, <laughs> right? Rather than say, I'm sorry, we'd rather say, no, it's you. It's not me. It's you. It's you. It's you. Again, to take responsibility is to say, um, well, yeah, I own up to this. I own up to this. I'm willing to admit my fault in this. And a question I ask is, so why do we think it's that way? Um, why do we have such trouble saying I'm sorry and taking responsibility? That's a question I want us to answer, but I'm not going to answer it now. I think the, the verses that we're going to be looking at in chapters 21 chapter 22 will begin to help us sort of, I think, think through what it means to say I'm sorry, what it means to actually take responsibility. Um, so to jump in here, uh, let me sum up before we get into this chapter. Uh, last week, uh, we saw David learn from Jonathan that uh, Saul is definitely out to get him. He wants to kill him, and so now David is on the run. And David's going to be in this period of his life where he's under threat from everywhere. Uh, of course, the biggest threat is Saul. He's hunting him down. He wants to kill him. But there's also the threat of the surrounding enemy nations. He's going to have to hide in some of those nations every once in a while. And, of course, they're enemies. They want to kill him. So throughout this time, David is in great danger. And what we're going to see from David is he's improvising a lot. He's sort of trying to figure things out on the run. Uh, he wants to stay alive. And so he's trying to figure out what can he do to stay alive. And in that improvising, uh, he sometimes is deceptive doesn't tell the whole truth. What we'll begin to say right from the jump here is some of the consequences of that. The consequences, especially to those who are around him. We'll see that especially as we get into the, the latter half of chapter 22. But verse 1 of chapter 21, it begins this way. Then David came to Nob, to Himelech the priest. And Himelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? So he comes to the city, and Himelech knows there's some kind of beef between Saul and David. And you, I'm going to say, you just get the sense, especially as we get through this chapter, like, he doesn't want to get in the middle of it, so that's why he's a little bit scared. He's like, why are you here? What's going on? He's got questions. Those are good questions. And David isn't sure how Amalek is going to respond. And so what does he do? He's deceptive. David doesn't tell the whole truth. He makes Amalek think, well, I'm in a special mission from Saul. That, that's, that's why I'm here without anything. <laughs> Verse 2 of chapter 21, it says this. David said to Elimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, 
Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So here's David improvising. In some sense, it's understandable. I mean, he's just learned from Jonathan. Saul is dead set on killing him. It's the first place he's going. He doesn't know where this guy stands, and so he, he says this thing. But the reality is this is not true. It's deceptive. Not letting Elimelech know, like, hey, it's a little bit dangerous for me to be around, just so you know. I mean, he's putting him at risk, isn't he? And so Elimelech doesn't know. We, of course, know, having read the story. And for whatever reason, Elimelech doesn't catch on because David shows up and says, I'm on a secret mission, but hey, do you have any food? Do you have any weapons? So he asks Elimelech for food. Elimelech makes a huge exception here. There happens to be holy bread. It's a bread that's set out in the tabernacle. Um, and it's technically only the priests are allowed to, to eat it. Elimelech makes a huge exception and says, hey, I'll let your men eat it if they're ritually pure. They happen to be. So he provides that food. He gives the, a weapon, which happens to be David, a Goliath's sword to David. So Elimelech does help David out, but he has no idea of what's going on. David doesn't say anything. David gets what he needs. He's soon going to be on his way, but we have a verse in here that, that's, um, well, that's a little ominous that lets us know that there's someone else seeing all that's going on here. This is verse 7 of chapter 21. A man named Doeg. And if you see that verse, what you see there, it says, here's a man who happened to be there, and it says, basically, what it implies here is he saw everything. He saw David show up. He saw Elimelech help him. And later on, at the end of chapter 22, David admits that he knows this guy. He knows Doeg, and he admits he knows Doeg might go and tell Saul what's happened. So David knows this situation. He knows this guy. He knows this guy could potentially rat him out. But David still doesn't say anything, does he? He doesn't admit uh, that he knows Doeg to Elimelech. He doesn't say anything to Elimelech to make him think that there's any danger here. Uh, he gets what he needs, and he moves on. Consequences, as I said, for this later on. But we move on to the next city. David now has got what he needs. He goes to Gath, the Philistine city. And this is how bad it's gotten. This is a country David has fought against. He's killed a lot of other people. But this seems to be the best place to hide. He can't hide out in, in, in Judah or Israel right now. And so he goes into the city he somehow maybe thinks that no one's going to recognize him. Of course they recognize him. Verse 10 of chapter 21. Um, oh, I'm a little bit... Uh, that's chapter 12 of chapter... That's not the... <laughs> all right, I got wrong verses here. Um, I'm just going to go to a blank screen because there's uh, chapter 12, and we already did chapter 12. So we'll do... Um, let's see here. If we can just go to a blank screen, that'll be great. They'll figure it out. <laughs> chapter, verse 10 of chapter 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Of course they recognize David. <laughs> uh, the people, remember, this is a guy who's killed thousands of people. There's a pop song about this, Right? They all know this guy. And so what happens is David gets arrested. We have uh, some psalms that were written by David in response to uh, basically him, what we were thinking about during this time period. And Psalm 56 in the subscript tells us, hey, they arrested David during this time. And so David, he's under great threat here. Again, so what does he do? He improvises. He pretends to be insane. We see in chapter 21, in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 21, he puts graffiti on the walls of the city. He drools over his beard. 
the king is like, why would you bring an insane person here? I don't want this guy. He's able to escape. He leaves. And again, once again, here's David just trying to, you get the sense of this guy, this, things are coming at him. He's doing whatever he can to figure it out, to escape. So after escaping Gad, David heads 10 miles southwest to Adullam. Uh, his family comes there because, of course, they're under threat now, too, because of all that's going on with Saul. And some people also show up. This is verse 2 of chapter 22 now. People in distress, in debt, who are discounted. Um, this is the beginnings of his own army, which is what we'll begin to see here. Lots of people who are also under threat, whether by society or personally under threat from Saul, they join David. But David, again, he's still in a run. He moves on to the next place. He moves to Moab. An interesting thing here, he's looking out for his parents. His parents can't keep up with this life, and so they, he brings them to Moab. One of the things that's interesting to remember here is Ruth, you, know, you guys remember the book of Ruth. Ruth is the great-great-grandmother right, of, of his family. Right? Great-grandmother is Ruth. I think the thing is here is you think maybe there's some family connection here. That's why here's a nation that's a, obviously an enemy nation. Maybe they'll allow my parents to stay there. It works for whatever reason. We don't know the reason. That's maybe one of the reasons why. So he's able to leave his parents here. He's able to move on. He goes back to Judah. Uh, to Judah. Prophet Gad says, go back to Judah. He goes back there. So that sort of finishes up a little bit right now, for now, at least, what's going on with David. I'm going to switch the scene, check in on Saul. So now we're in chapter 22, in verse 6. Saul is sitting by a tree. He's got a spear in his hand, maybe to throw it at someone else to try to kill him. And as the people say, he's in his feelings, right? Once you see what he says here about how he's feeling about all that's going on. This is verse 7 of chapter 22. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. It's interesting, if you read those, look at those verses. Right, here we go. Um, if you look at those verses, uh, first of all, Saul uh, is, doesn't even use David's name. He calls him the son of Jesse. Like, he's so, like, upset with him, he won't use his name. <laughs> Another thing, though, is notice just the way he describes what's happening here. He basically says, look, like, can David pay you guys off the way I do? Which, it's an interesting thread here to see the difference between Saul and David. David has people joining him, even though he has got nothing to offer. They're joining him because of commitment to his cause and to his values. Saul, at this point, is at the point of saying, look, I can pay you more. I can pay you. Why would you go with David? I can give you more. I can give you uh, uh, vineyards and fields and all that type of thing. But really, in the end of this, what you see here from Saul is someone who, um, well, who wants to do anything possible to, to put the attention off of him, to not take responsibility. In just these two verses, what do you see from Saul? You see him blame shift, right? He says, look at you guys. You've, you haven't told me what's going on. It's your fault. We see him slander. He accuses his son Jonathan of being a conspiracy. Jonathan, he came back, <laughs> right? And yet he says, Jonathan's against me. Uh, all of you are, are, are against me. So he's misrepresenting what's going on. There's obviously some sense of self-deception here. Like everyone has sort of brought this up together. To, he sort of he have his, has in his mind this whole sort of vast conspiracy that's around him, and he's willing to sort of buy into this. You've, you've allowed these people to stir up things against me, and, and you haven't done anything to stop it. There's obviously self-pity. Um, notice what he says there. None of you is sorry for me, <laughs> right? You should feel sorry that I'm in this situation. So in all these things, he's, 
blame shifting, he's slandering, self-deception, self-pity. He's pushing everything out. This situation is not my fault. It's all yours fault, and you caused it, and you won't help me. So he's mad about this. Again, he wants to get David. Of course, it happens to, to be that Doeg is there. You remember Doeg. And Doeg is more than happy to feed into the jealousy and paranoia of Saul. This is verse 9 and 10 of chapter 22. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Himelech the son of Ahetab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, notice, that's not quite all that happened there. <laughs> made it sound like Elimelech was, again, conspiracy, right? Out to get you. I saw it happen. But Doeg is happy to sort of feed into paranoia. Maybe he thinks Saul will sort of pay him off and, 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 and really he'll be promoted because of what he's doing here. This is all Saul needs to hear. Saul calls for uh, Elimelech and all the priests from Nob. They show up before Saul in Gibeah. And again, remember, remember where we started? David hasn't hinted to Elimelech that he's in danger, that there's a situation here. He hasn't said any of that. So Elimelech, his family, the priests, they all showed up thinking everything is cool, right? And so they're shocked when Saul is just fuming at them, upset. Like they had no idea what was going on. Verse 13, Saul accuses them of conspiracy, of treason. You guys are out to get me. If you look at verses 14 and 15, you see Amalek's response. And the summary of what he says here is, look, I had no idea about any of this. And he lists out all these different things. I mean, it's like five different things. He lists, like, why would I think anything is going on? David has been the most faithful servant of you, Saul. I mean, he's your son-in-law. Remember, he's part of the family. He's been honored by your kingdom. Uh, when people come to me and ask, what does God want me to do? I'm a priest. Of course I tell them what to do. Why would I think anything is going on? You get the sense, again, of a guy who's like, I'm not trying to get in the middle of any of this. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what's going on. But Saul is not hearing any of it. I mean, I think Saul had decided he was going to kill everyone even before he got there. It doesn't matter what he has to say. And that's what he does. He turns to his guards. He says in verse 17 of chapter 22, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. And think about that. The priest of the Lord, he knows who they are, but he says, look, the most important thing here is that they were against me. I think they're against me. Kill them all. The guards won't do it because they know this is not cool. <laughs> this is unjust. And they're the priest of the Lord. And so they won't respond. They won't do it. And so what does Saul do? He turns to Doeg and says, you kill them all. And he's only too happy to do it. Verse 18 says, Doeg kills all the priests, 85 people. Defenseless. He kills them all, and he doesn't stop there. Next verse, we read Doeb goes to Nob, their hometown, and he kills every living thing that's there. Every human being, every living animal, wipes them all out. And it's, think about this. In the larger scope of, of the Bible, Saul is allowing Doeg to do to this city what basically he didn't do to one of the enemy cities. Back in chapter 15, the Malachites, there's an evil pagan city, an evil king. And against God's command, he lets the king live, and he takes some of the, the loot from that city. But here we are, the irony here of, of his own city, a city of his own people, full of priests of the Lord, and one guy in the city has a meeting with David. One guy. And he decides to wipe him out, to wipe him off the face of the earth. So everyone's killed except for one person, one of the sons of Elimelech, 
He goes, he escapes, and he comes to David. The chapter ends this way. Chapter 20, end of chapter 22, verse 21. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. Here's David admitting, like, I, I, I saw this, I knew it. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. So, uh, a lot of people were killed. A lot of people were killed, and this is directly because of Saul, of course, right? His paranoid, his out-of-control temper, his selfishness. But I want you to notice something here. For everything that we looked at, what does David focus on? What does David focus on? Verse 22, it says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Another way to translate that is, uh, I have brought about death to your people. I am responsible for this. Now, again, the person directly responsible for like the whole city being killed it's Saul. It's Doeg. Let's say they're 90% responsible, right? They're the ones who killed everyone. But the 10% that David is responsible, that's what David, that's what David focuses on. He doesn't use that as an excuse. He admits, I set this up. He shows regret. He shows responsibility for what happened. His deception put Elimelech at risk, and then it was used by Saul and Doeg to then kill everyone, to kill the whole town. He takes responsibility. And notice, in taking responsibility, he also makes some amends. It's not just like, I'm responsible for this. Verse 23, it says, hey, come and stay with me. I'll protect you. There's the last survivor. I'm willing to do what I can. It's hard to say this, isn't it? I'm sorry. It's hard to say I'm sorry, to take responsibility, to own up to our mistakes, our failures, our weaknesses, our sins. And what we see from Saul is the pattern that we're used to, what our culture teaches us, not me. <laughs> it's not me. Instead, we blame shift. It's their fault. Don't you see? They do the same thing. <laughs> right? I did it, but they did it worse. Let's talk about them. We, uh, we go into self-pity. Don't you, don't you feel for me? Sure, I messed up. Sure, I, maybe I'm responsible, but like, you've got to understand what I'm going through and what I'm feeling and all these different things. We, we, we go into self-pity. Or sometimes we just outright denial. We gaslight. All right. It's not that bad. This is not the situation that we're going through. And we have a situation where David could have easily done the same thing. Yes, I should have told the truth. I shouldn't have been deceptive. I put you guys at risk. But the last thing I want you to hear is more Saul's fault. Here's what Saul did. He killed all these people. That's not what does, David does here. And I, I want to argue this, this is something that carries through in the rest of David's life. One of the things I think we can see from David over and over is that at times he does things, but when he's confronted with it, he owns up to it. Later on, he's going to be confronted by a woman named Abigail, and he owns up to the fact that he was about to make a huge mistake. The biggest example of this is, of course, what happens with him and Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan confronts him. What does he do? I'm sorry. I own up to it. He takes responsibility. Uh, the Bible describes David as being a man after God's own heart. And I used to think that that, that that terminology meant like David was like a really righteous guy, right? Really good Christian, if you put it that way. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. I'm starting to think maybe that's not what really made David a man after God's own heart. 
Sure, David followed God a lot more <laughs> than some other people. But also, David had some way worse failures than some other people. <laughs> like, catastrophic. People died. Lots of people died. Civil wars happened from some of his mistakes, some of his sins. I think what made David a man after God's own heart was his willingness to admit when he's wrong. His willingness to say, I'm responsible. I'm sorry, I'm responsible, I will make things right as much as I can. His willingness to respond when confronted with his own error, with his own sin. As I said, this is hard to do. It's hard to accept the weight of being responsible for something. It's easier to think I'm right. I'm right in my own eyes, like it says in Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is a default position for us. It's easier to do. So what helps us? What helps us be willing to say, I'm sorry, I'll take responsibility? Well, I think what helped David is the perspective that he had. And, and to get this perspective, we got to go to Psalm 52. There's another psalm that David wrote during this time. It gives us a sense of how he was thinking through things, right? We know this because the Psalm 52, the subtitle of it is, David wrote this when Doeg came and betrayed him to Saul, right? So here's his mindset during this time. And, and there's a lot of interesting things in this psalm. Uh, that's a whole other sermon to just preach this psalm and the different ways he's processing this. But I'm going to focus in on verses 8 and 9. I think this is perspective that allowed him to be the kind of man who could say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm responsible, I will try and make it better. What makes him a man like that? I think it's this perspective, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 52. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Listen, if the only person you will listen to is yourself, your own inner voice, your own inner thoughts, if that is the, priority, uh, the, the most important, the, the voice that takes priority in your heart and mind, guess what? You will always be right, and there will be huge consequences for it. Because the Bible tells us we can't always be right. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it says in Romans 3. What's it trying to tell us? We all will fail. We all will mess up. The question is, what do you do in the wake of that? If the only voice you listen to is yourself, then you'll never change. You'll always stay the same. But if there's another voice that you're willing to listen to, you're allowing another voice to enter into your heart and mind, and, and you're willing to do something even more. You're willing to let that voice take the priority. Well, it can be different. And that voice, of course, is God. If the voice you listen to is not just your voice, but God's voice in your heart and life, and you're willing to let God's voice take the priority, if you're willing to, and I love this image here, Plant yourself like an olive tree in the house of God. The sense here is that my roots are not in myself. My roots are in God. I'm being fed and nourished by God. If I'm willing to depend, not in my understanding, but God's understanding. I'm willing to rely, not in my commitments, but God's commitment to me. If you're willing to do that, then you will be willing and able to say I'm sorry, to take responsibility. You'll be willing to hear the voice of God confront you and to be willing to say, yes, you're right. And in that way, there's healing there's repair, there's restoration, there's the ability to always live in you in better ways. To believe in God and trust him is to admit that, yes, you will fail, 
Yes, you will let yourself down. Yes, you will let the other people around you down. It will happen. But you can still have the strength to say, I'm sorry. I'm responsible. I will try and make it better. Because what you're trusting in is not yourself. What you're trusting in is in God and his love. What you're trusting in, not your ability to never fail, what you're trusting is in God, and God never fails. And because God never fails, you have someone you can come to and who will say, hey, bring your sorrow to me. Bring your pain and hurts to me, and I'll forgive you. I'll show you the better way. And that's most representative, of course, in Jesus. I can talk about this sort of in an abstract way, but the most concrete way to say, hey, you can come to someone, and you can say, I'm sorry, and he will always forgive you. The way I know can say that for sure is because of Jesus. Jesus is God accepting our forgiveness, offering our forgiveness, offering forgiveness to us. In Jesus, we find someone who knows we're going to fail and who will always forgive if we're willing to say, I'm sorry. We're willing to say, hey, I'm responsible. I will try and make it better. What we need to do, of course, is respond to that voice. The voice of God, which is the voice of Jesus saying, hey, it's okay to be led before God to be led before Jesus, and to be in that space where we can say, I'm sorry, I take responsibility, I will try and make it better. And by the way, in many ways, uh, what we do weekly here in our time of response is opportunity to train yourself to do that on a daily. <laughs> One of the things, reasons we have a time of response as a people of God regularly on Sundays is a way to remind ourselves this should be a regular practice of our lives. Here's, if you never do it during the week, you can know at least first day of the week, you have an opportunity to respond to God and to hear him say, hey, what do you need to admit? Can you say, I'm sorry? I will forgive you. And because you're forgiven, you can go and admit all, all sorts of things to all the people around you. You can begin to make repair. You can begin to change in the ways that only God can help you change because you first brought it to him, because you first brought it to Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm responsible. I will try and do it better. Those words are powerful. Those words actually change things. When we blame shift, when we self-deny, we self-pity, that's actually power, that makes you powerless. Those things don't change anything. Anytime we shift the blame, we push things, it actually doesn't make you power, powerful. It makes you powerless. The only thing that actually brings change is the ability to admit when those times happen, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'm responsible, I need to make it better. It's those words that activate the power of God within us. It's those words that allow Jesus to come and renew us and to cleanse us and to help us live in the ways that only God can make us. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's almost impossible to do. And that's why we must listen to, not just listen, but that's why we must submit to someone who knows what's best for us, who we can trust with our hearts and lives, who won't crush us when he sees how weak we can be how often we can mess up, how hugely we can mess up, that we can put ourselves in his hands and rather than crush us, he forgives us and remakes us and makes us into a people who can be humble and admit it all over the place. And because we admit it all over the place, that actually makes us the most powerful people around. A kind of people who are willing to admit what is really apparent, <laughs> if you look at human history, we mess up a lot. But what do we do on the other side of it? We take responsibility. We make changes. And in that space, miraculous things happen. God things happen. 
God has made that possible for Jesus, and possible for us in Jesus. Let's, let's pray that we would hear his voice humbly and respond in the ways that only he can make us. Lord, thank you uh, for this time, and thank you for Jesus, and um, Lord, uh, thank you for this uh, example, Lord, of um, what it looks like, Lord, to, well, all of us live lives doing all sorts of things that we do, and there's times where we need to stop and say, hey, like David said, I'm responsible. And Lord, um, this thread that we do see in David's life of admitting responsibility, of confessing our sin, um, of, of making changes, Lord, of, of trying to make it better, Lord, where we can, of repairing, where we can repair. Um, Lord, uh, we recognize, Lord, how much everything in us wants to say, you're okay, you're all right. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. But Lord, thank you that you're the voice that says, hey, you can admit it, and I will forgive you. Our sins, Lord God, are first and ultimately against you. It's because you forgive us, Lord, that allows us to live in forgiven ways. It allows us to admit all sorts of things in all our relationships, in all our spaces. And in that space, Lord God, you can bring great change. So, Lord, in the marriages, Lord, where that, those words need to be said, I'm sorry, I'm responsible, let me try and make it better, Lord, to help us to say those words. In the families where those words need to be said, help us to say those words. In the, the schools, Lord, we're in, in the workplaces we're in, uh, in the communities that we're part of, in the church relationships that we've had, or have in the past or have right now. Uh, Lord, uh, help us, Lord, because we've been forgiven by you, Lord, be willing to extend that, Lord, to others around us, even as we confess it to those around us. And Lord, uh, show the kind of thing, Lord, that this world desperately wants. People want things better, Lord, but it's because we are willing to admit where we sin. That's why it stays the same but your church can be different and is different. So Lord, help us, um, enable us, Lord, to take responsibility. And we thank you for what the other side will be. Um, great hope and life, healing, repair, restoration. All the things are only possible because of what you've done for us in Jesus. It's his name we pray, amen.